You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Well, hey, today at 1 o'clock, we're going to be celebrating uh, Pastor Brian. Uh, He and his family are headed out. We're excited for him. He served on our staff team and done an incredible job. So we're doing a send-off party for him. And uh, he's accepted a position uh, as a senior pastor in his hometown. So let's just celebrate him. We're proud of him. Yeah, so we're excited about that. Uh, They've served faithfully, and and we're excited to be able to see uh, God's ministry continue to to grow all across our country and uh, our world. So today, what I want to do is, before I get started, is share with you some updates about kind of how some things are going. Um, When you drove in, you probably saw that building on the right-hand side, that dumpster's out there. And so that's the last and the largest existing building on our campus. Isn't that good? Last and largest, that's true, last and largest existing building on our campus to be renovated. And so last week I shared with you and said that we've been doing the demo work and all that is basically done. So they've done a great job with that. However, we'd love to have, if you want to, if you got an able body and some working gloves and you want to show up tomorrow morning around seven o'clock, we'll be getting started to show up and then help us move the debris into the dumpster so the team can go ahead and start construction process right away. Uh, with that being said, what we're doing is uh, we're expanding our space and our facilities everywhere. Uh, and all of our, so our total space for kids, youth, and adults is expanding uh, very quickly. So um, on September 12th, uh, we're going to be kicking off a brand new message series. And on that Sunday, we're offering two services, a 9 and a 1045. This is a service change for you guys. So for you guys, this is simple. It's you're showing up at 11. Now you show up at 1045. Some of you have to rearrange. We're going to expand this space by 40% seating occupancy starting September 12th. Uh, The reason why is our overall, our total campus space for kids, youth, and adults is increasing their spaces for kids and youth. It'll be almost three times the size of space. So we got plenty of room to grow. Um, And then what's going to happen is those services will fill up and then we'll go back to three and then we'll break out more walls and then we'll go back to two and then you just keep going and growing. That's how it works. So um, you might ask uh, about, you know, why a little bit more about the service change. Well, overall, big picture is is we just got, we were going to have more space even in this room. Um, And then additionally, what I'd say is this is going to give us the opportunity to do baptisms in between services. Right now, we only do baptisms after the third. So you guys are lucky. You see a lot of baptisms. Well, the people in first and second don't get to see the baptisms. So now we can do more baptisms after each of our services. There'll be a 35-minute turnaround time. So there will be less pressure to get out of here quick. Um, We'll have more hang time out in the courtyard, which will be really cool. And it gives us the opportunity to do better deep cleaning in between the services. That's not something we're able to do at the level that we want for cleaning in between the services because of the tight turnarounds. So now we can do a more thorough job uh, with uh, cleaning our our ministry spaces, uh, classrooms, and uh, this chapel before uh, those services. So I want to encourage you to mark your calendars for that. Um, We've got a lot of new folks that are here in the church. Uh, a lot of you showed up today. Glad you're here. Um, um, we 
after our services, we're trying to create more relational uh, connection opportunity to follow up and be a part of the church and all that good stuff. So that's coming September 12th. I want to encourage you to mark your calendars. Uh, the day before that, FYI, is the 9-11 memorial. It's a time to remember and honor those who have served in, uh, as first responders. And so this church is becoming kind of an anchor hub uh, to send a great message that we really value all our first responders. And 9-11 marks the 20-year anniversary of uh, when our, our nation was attacked. And so we're going to take a little bit of time and honor, and we're going to remember. And so um, for all of our folks that are watching online and all of you that have been in service uh, that are men and women, first responders, it's been a tough time. Uh, we're very proud of you. We honor you. We support you. We thank you for your service. And I ask that would you guys celebrate with me and thank them for their service in our country. So we're getting started today. Uh, for those of you that uh, about mentioning those service times, maybe you're uncomfortable because you'll know it'll just be a bigger crowd. I, I understand. What I would say is if you're uncomfortable for any reason to attend those services, I want to let you know that we're going to continue to work very, very hard to improve two service options. Uh, one is the uh, live stream online service. So we're going to encourage folks uh, if they're uncomfortable for any reason at all, just do church at home. It's been happening for thousands of years. There's been lots of house churches. So uh, this is your uh, big gathering opportunity. But in a time like this, uh, if kids are getting sick and people aren't feeling well, if you're sick, just stay, help me out, just stay home. And so uh, we're going to continue to offer uh, and do a better job on live streaming uh, for doing church at home. Uh, we're, we as well are going to continue to work hard to make sure we provide excellent outdoor uh, service opportunity uh, for the Ramada. You get a bottom, bottomless uh, cup of uh, North Valley gold out there, so you can enjoy that as well. And so, uh, Lord willing, the cooler seasons come, and we're just into a great season of ministry and growth, and we're excited for that. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get started in today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this church, too. You've got a great church here, Lord. And it's great to serve uh, with um, our ministry staff you know, and to partner with so many wonderful families. Lord, I, I pray for the families, for their uh, strength, their blessing, your, their favor over them. And I ask now as well, Lord, for a special privilege in insight and understanding to see how you work in our world. I thank you, Father, for uh, the things that are happening that are good and, and for your glory, and I pray that you continue to give us favor as a church. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, so today we're continuing on in this message series called Truth for Life, and uh, today we're going to be learning about God's search and rescue operation on the world. Uh, I want to tell you a story. Back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, I worked on a guide staff of about 100 guides that commercially guided uh, people into the mountains of Colorado uh, the, uh, to bag summits, 14,000-foot peaks. We did commercial rock climbing trips and commercial whitewater rafting, class 3 and 4, and some did class 5. Every once in a while, on one of the commercial trips that we did, there would be a call for an evacuation of an injured person. Um, the worst thing you could do as a guide for an emergency uh, evac is to call in a helicopter 
uh, for an evac when you don't really need it. It doesn't matter if your leg is broken and you're 15 miles away from the nearest uh, road. Uh, you have to get out of there without calling a helicopter. In fact, there was one trip I went on and we were in training. I walked into a basin of a big, large mountain and I saw debris everywhere. And I asked the senior level leader guide, I said, what happened? He said, a guide called in for an air evac when he shouldn't have. The winds were way too strong. The elevation was way too tall. Storms come in so fast when you're in high altitude country. Uh, you don't call in for that. Uh, most of the time what happened was, was if there was an emergency and we needed to evacuate somebody, what we would do is send in a small little stealth team, uh, a couple of guides. And it was part of our contract when we signed on to work as guides that we would uh, agree to be awakened in the middle of the night, not based on our choice, on the leadership's choice, and be summoned to go do a search and rescue. And so... Um, that happened on a uh, semi-regular basis throughout the summer. Imagine a staff of 100 uh, guides or so. That's a lot of folks. That means we got a lot of customers. So um, it was very uh, possible, and it did happen when I was there on staff, that uh, uh, staff members would be summoned in the middle of the night uh, to venture out into the mountains. It didn't matter if it was dark at night, if it was early in the morning, if there was fog. It didn't matter if there was rain, sleet, snow, hail. The mission was really clear. Doesn't matter what the conditions are, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna rescue the individual and uh, the injured person and we're gonna return them as quick as possible. When we get into God's word today, what I need you to think about is there is an incredible rescue operation that has been going on for thousands and thousands of years and God's in charge of this rescue operation. Um, when we look at the passage of Scripture, I want you to think about God in doing a search and rescue mission. Uh, Pastor Joshua uh, read the passage, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. People will perish and die without the saving work of Jesus Christ. God prepared a rescue mission. So let's look at John's gospel, uh, verses 9 through 13. This is where we're going to see the rescue mission unfolded. Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, that is Jesus, and the world was made through him, that is Jesus. Yet the world did not know him, that is Jesus. A lot of people didn't know who he was, didn't understand who he was, didn't understand uh, what was going on. Verse 11, he came to his own. Those are our fellow uh, Jewish friends and folks that uh, Jesus was a Jew. And his people, check this out, did not receive him. In other words, right off the bat, we get a realization that God was breaking forth a rescue operation. And there are some folks that will reject him. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, uh, they accept him, uh, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, to be born again, to become a Christian. But it says, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So there is the rescue operation. What I want to help you understand is this idea of the, the idea that when we become Christians, we become God's kids. We become God's children. All throughout Scripture, there's this, this consistent idea that God is our heavenly Father and we are His children. 
uh, the Lord's Prayer, Our Heavenly Father, Thou art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is our heavenly Father. We should think of God as our Father. And if we become Christians, we are His kids. And through the church, we become family. Because God had a rescue operation, He adopted us into His family through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He paid for your adoption. But what does the Bible tell us is that mankind is lost. In other words, without Jesus, we're lost. We're like the injured hiker. We're lost, and we need rescuing. Um, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says, the wages of sin is death. The Bible says that we walk in darkness, live in darkness apart from Jesus. So mankind is like the lost boys. You remember that phrase, the lost boys in, in the movies? And not like Kiefer Sutherland or Corey Feldman's old vampire movie, although that was kind of an interesting flick. Um, but perhaps the idea of being lost like Pete from Pete's Dragon. The little boy, uh, the story is in the, in the story is that uh, he loses his mother and father. He's orphaned. He's alone in the woods. And there's a search and rescue operation that goes on. And he is saved by some unlikely characters. Um, the Bible says is that there's this rescue operation, and it's really sad because a lot of people will reject it. They don't want to get saved. You know this, and I know this, that God does have a mission. He wants to save the world. He wants to save people. That's his business. He comes to save. Jesus came to save. Jesus came to give life and to give it, help me out, abundant. Let's try that again. Jesus came to give life and to give it abundant. You got it. So he came to give life and give it abundantly. But you know and I know there are so many people that reject Jesus Christ. Remember when I was a little kid, I was on the back of a bus, and I, did, I wasn't even a Christian, but I figured if you're bad, you don't, you don't know Jesus. So I asked this kid, hey, hey bro, uh, you're all messed up. You get into so much trouble. You know, I'm third grade. And I said, uh, you know, do you know Jesus? And he said, bam, broke my nose. I, was in third, I, I made a decision right there. I will never share the gospel, never talk about Jesus the rest of my life. Little did I know I would dedicate the rest of my life uh, sharing about Jesus. If I have any regret at the end of my life, and perhaps when I get to heaven, the only regret I will have is that I didn't convince more people not to reject Jesus. That's probably what it is. Maybe you've seen the movie Schindler's List, and the guy who saves all the people from death and destruction, and they ask him, I'm going to talk to him about, do you have any regrets? And he says, I wish I would have just saved more. Um, there are a lot of people that will reject Jesus Christ, and what the Apostle John clarifies is that it's kind of a shocking reality how many people actually do reject Jesus. Look at verse 11. Hopefully, you've got a Bible. You can look there in your own Bible, but basically, I'll tell you what it says is that there are people that didn't receive him, his own people. Jesus was a Jew. The Jewish people rejected Jesus pled with the Romans to have him crucified. They rejected him. Not saying, he was, they were saying, he's not the Messiah. He's not really the son of God. So they have him crucified. Jesus was rejected. But what people don't understand about God's rescue operation is to reject Jesus Christ is catastrophic results. Catastrophic. The difference between life and death. All throughout the scripture, I'll just paraphrase 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. In essence, says that basically there's hell to pay if you do not uh, accept Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus... You're lost, eternally lost, separated from the life of God, separated with the love of God. Your, your destiny is destruction in hell, in eternal torment. Terrible 
outcome for those that reject Jesus Christ. Um, In John chapter 3, verse 36, later John's going to say, basically anyone who rejects Jesus, the life, God's wrath will rest on him. In other words, for everybody who rejects Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, they're walking around not with God's favor and blessing on their life. They're walking around with God's wrath. And you say, why is that? Well, listen, ladies and gentlemen, the salvation message has been breaking forth in history for a very, very long time. Preachers are like sirens trying to sound off the alarm. And what's discouraging at times is that people don't respond to the message of Jesus Christ and they choose not to be rescued. It's like when you watch on TV and you see the fire of flames and you, they do the interviews with the family members that ran out of the house, but there was that one guy who wanted to try to save everything and the house is lit up in fires and he stayed there. Or the flash floods, they sound off a siren and say, please evacuate, please evacuate, and we're here to rescue you, and they don't want to be rescued. What is true about mankind is there's plenty of people, and you know them, perhaps you're one of them, or perhaps you were one of them, you don't want to rescue you are your own rescue. You rescue yourself. Or they rescue themselves. They don't need a savior. But the good news is, is that while there are some that reject, there are also many that accept it. This is exactly what John says in verse 12. You can read. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become children of God. God adopts us into his family. And there's many people that accept Jesus Christ. I accepted Jesus. You accepted Jesus. If you are a Christian, you accepted Jesus into your life. John shares about that. There are some that will reject. There are some that will accept. And there's a lot of folks that have accepted Jesus Christ. And despite negative news that you may hear or narratives in in culture, within even in Christendom, there are plenty of uh, researchers and writers that constantly push out scare tactics to make you think that Christianity is not doing so great. I've got news for you. I'll give you an update on the church already. Let me give you an update about Christianity worldwide. Um, Christianity worldwide is doing great. We're the largest religion in the whole world. In fact, by uh, 2050, it's estimated that 3 billion believers will be around. 3 billion. Uh, The numbers of evangelicals has been rising um, from the 1970s to 112 million to 386 million uh, in 2020. That's where we're at. Uh, Christianity globally, though, listen to this, very interesting, is predominantly a non-white movement. That means is that if you look at it around the world, the geography, God's rescue operation is booming. Things are going great. Uh, In the global south, 77% of all believers alive today are in the global south. South America, there's so many believers that are coming to faith in Christ and growing. In parts of Africa, Christianity is growing like wildfire. Where is it diminishing? Where is there struggle? There's been struggle in Europe for a long time. For many reasons, which we don't have time to explore, and and uh, Christians uh, in American culture, they're not they're growing. We're growing as believers. There's many more uh, people that are growing. Churches are growing despite negative news that you may hear, but nothing at the rate of what's going on in South America, the global South, and Africa. So my point in saying this is that there's there's a lot of good news. While there is some startling news that we heard from John saying people will reject Jesus, there's a lot of people that accept Jesus. And let me tell you now the backstory on how Christianity became 
the largest religion in all the world, starting in the first century. There's a great historian, uh, sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark. He's a Christian author, writer. Uh, he uh, lectured, uh, I'm pretty sure, down at Baylor University. Read some of his materials. If you're into sociology, you would like his book. Uh, don't mistake this book. It's called The Triumph of Christianity. Uh, very good. Uh, and there's also a bad guy that wrote this, a similar book that argues against Christianity. That guy's name is Bart Ehrman. Um, that guy, Bart, we're just going to call him Bad Bart. Don't get Bad Bart's book, get uh, Rodney Stark's book. Think Stark Enterprises, you won't forget. So Rodney Stark provides an incredible uh, 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 kind of a case studies and does historical work. How did Christianity move from this uh, small movement of Jesus followers to the largest religion in all the world? And this matters, history matters, because if you understand history, you can better understand your present time and the future. Okay, so here, here we go. Uh, why did Christianity, or how did Christianity become the largest religion? And why am I even talking about this? Because I'm telling you, John says in the very beginning, there are a lot that are going to reject Jesus, but there is a lot that accept Jesus. Number one, one of the key reasons why Christianity grew to what it was, was the witness of women. Uh, see, Roman culture devalued women, and, and they didn't have any rights, but Christians valued women. And they gave them every right that the men had because they believed that every person was made equal in the eyes of God. Um, uh, women were inferior uh, in the Christian community. They were just the same as men. There were special roles and responsibilities. Don't get me wrong on that. However, the, the women were coming to faith in Christ in mass numbers in the first century, and they were having babies. And they're having babies and raising those babies to know and love and follow Jesus. So therefore, women had a huge impact in the first century because it was an incredible alternative against even Judaism, which put women in a completely another category, or in the Greco-Roman idea of paganism and the Roman culture around them, Christianity was an awesome opportunity. Um, secondly, there was the bravery of men. Men like never before were dying in wholesale numbers, lined up in Colosseums and dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Colosseums loaded with people like Cardinal Stadium were witnessing Christians being eaten alive by lions, testifying to the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. It had the wrong effect that Rome didn't want. More people came to faith in Christ because the logic is... If they're going to die for their faith, then obviously it must be true. The bravery of men. Secondly, was the role of the rich. Uh, there's a popular concept uh, that basically that uh, Christianity got its takeoff because uh, it was a movement among the poor and the needy. You probably think of that, like Jesus is homeless, uh, Christians were, the, 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 the disciples were dirt poor. No, actually, uh, history and more careful examination of the scriptures shows that part of the reason why Christianity took off the way it did, because it was having influence at the highest levels of society. Remember when the apostle Paul was in prison, he said, oh, I, I thank God that I was in prison because it's gotten out about the message of Jesus to Caesar and his whole household. The emperor of Rome 
found out. There were people in, in Caesar's household that came to faith in Jesus Christ, and they're pushing, perhaps even creating opportunities for Christians to thrive at the very top level to help uh, do ministry. Think about Jesus' disciples. Um, those guys, a lot of them, although you may think of them as homeless uh, fugitives or whatever, outcasts, they were small business owners. They had influence. They had employees. When you look at the scriptures and you see what was going on, these guys left their nets, left other employees, and let them do the job, and then they take off. So think about Jesus' parables. When Jesus is doing parables, is, uh, think about all the times he mentions things about investments, debt, uh, property, uh, tenants, servants, employees. He's constantly talking in a business fashion. What's my point? My point is, is that the role of the rich had a very powerful influence. And a gentleman by the name of Karl Marx in the late uh, 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 19th, early 19th century, he proposed this idea that Christianity was just a movement among the poor. He called it basically, I'll paraphrase, a drug for the masses. Or have you heard this before? Christianity is just a crutch for the needy. I would argue that's not at all what happened. But what did happen? There was the witness of women, there was the bravery of men, there was the role of the rich, and then there was the missions and relief to the poor and the needy. How did Christianity get so big and powerful? Christians, in the face of danger, went into the danger. Um, let's just go back to the, um, the, the dark ages when the bubonic plague broke out. Guess who showed up in the nastiness of the, the dirty streets and for the people that were sick? While everybody ran away, guess who ran into the trauma and the drama? The Christians. Uh, guess who was there when the Romans and other folks were tossing out babies like garbage and trash heaps because they were deformed because they didn't value life very much? Guess who was there to pick up those babies? The Christians. Guess who was there to, to feed the hungry and to heal the sick? The Christians. So how did Christianity get so big? Those are just a few reasons. So the sad part about this is that we can think about how good we've done as Christians. But John is going to say, I don't want you to think about how good we've done. I want you to think about how good God is, how big, how glorious he is. His rescue, salvation effort, his rescue, search and rescue plan for all of humanity. It needs to be highlighted that it's not man who should get the glory. It should be God who gets the glory. So let's look at this last point. Uh, number three, God gets the glory. Look back in your Bible, verse 13, and we're going to slow down and we're going to look at this passage. And, uh, and what I'm going to do is uh, help you to understand where we pick up before. It's basically that um, there's going to be many people who receive Jesus Christ. They're going to be born again believers. Um, and they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God doesn't say, but of man. In other words, God gets the glory. That's where I'm going with this. So we're going to pump the brakes, slow down, and walk through this phrase very clearly, because this is super important. John and the, uh, the Gospel of John and Romans have been said by uh, Luther, the, the famous church uh, reformer, basically said, if you got the Gospel of John and Romans, you got all the totality of the Christian gospel message. It's major theology right here. Um, so we're going to pump the brakes, slow down. It's like going down Bumblebee uh, Curve, 
uh, when you're going down from Sunset Point, and imagine you're pulling a big uh, trailer, and you know you better go slow, right? I remember one time going down Bumblebee Hill, literally there was a cattle truck that didn't go slow, and that cattle truck flipped, and that was a messy sight on I-17. My point in saying when we go through this passage, we're pumping the brakes and going slow because it could be a little hard to understand, but I'll break it down real easy for you. So God gets the glory. John's going to clarify that in verse 13. This is the last little phrase in our passage that we're looking at. He says, it's not of blood. In other words, that salvation isn't a race issue. A lot of people in Jesus's day, when they showed up, they thought, oh no, the message of Jesus isn't for the Gentiles. It's only for, uh, the message of God is for the Jews. But what's interesting, a lot of the Jews rejected Jesus. The essence of what John is saying here is salvation isn't a race issue. It's not for a privileged class or color. It's not about a special family favorites. It's not about who's your daddy, who's your mama. It's not a, that the fact you don't become a Christian because you're born into a Christian family or you have a family of faith. It's not of that. You, you, you're not a Christian. You didn't get rescued because... You have some family bloodline. The only blood that matters is the blood of, help me out, Jesus. Yeah, you got it. So John's day, many thought they were, uh, uh, had special privileges as Jewish people because Jesus was Jew. Um, but the Bible tells us that he loves all the little children of the world. The old Sunday school song, uh, red, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his, help me out. Yeah, so you know that. Good. So all people are, doesn't matter. And like I said earlier, 77% of all believers right now are in the global South. The largest uh, uh, immigrant uh, population of folks are coming from Mexico. Christianity is more brown than it is white. Uh, That's perhaps a, a, not PC language, but I'm just saying that's the way it is. There's no there's no special privilege class or color to Christianity. It's for all people. It says again here, it says, not the, nor the will of the flesh. This means that salvation isn't a result of personal effort, that no one can earn their way to heaven. It's not through good works or moral improvement. You can't cough up a bunch of cash or tithe more or give more or get baptized to earn your way into heaven. I thought you could at one point in time. There was this really cute girl in junior high, and she said, I don't date non-Christians. And I said, well, how do you know if you're a Christian or not? She said, well, you got to get baptized. And I said, well, tomorrow I'm getting baptized. And so I got baptized, and I came up out of that water, and I said, what do you think, Allison? She said, I think you're a fake. (laughs) And she was right. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't make you a Christian. It matters what you believe. So it goes on. It says, nor the will of man. In other words, this means that there's no man-made system that can get you to heaven. There's no climbing the stair step to heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. And John made it clear that it's, it's of God. It's God. God. God does the saving. You don't do the saving. It doesn't mean that he doesn't care about you. He cares tremendously about you. But God is the person who does the rescue for you. Mankind is lost. Mankind's in great need. And religion constantly tries to build the stairway up to heaven. Religion does. And the gospel message is is that Jesus came down. Let me just do that again. Religion basically says, let's build our way up to heaven and climb there. 
climb the ladder of moralism, behaviors, tradition, uh, things. Let's get up to heaven and arise to God. But God says, no, this is how salvation works. Salvation works, I'm coming to you. I'm coming down. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Behold, a Savior who is born, who will forgive his people from their sins. So religion in the United States, Christianity is the biggest, that's good. Judaism's right behind it. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, affiliated religions are growing. Atheist, agnostic, religious pluralist, and the New Agers. So they're all trying to climb their way up to heaven. In Judaism, for example, there's 613 commandments. In other words, if you want to get to heaven, you better climb 613 different commandments. Most Jews will tell you it's kind of a depressing situation. It's a lot of commandments to keep up with. Um, then there's the atheists. They have no idea. There is no heaven uh, to them. There is no God. There is no uh, life after death. You just become dirt and that's it. So live like you want because there, there is no God. Agnostics say, hey, I don't know if there is a God or not. Maybe there is, but basically try to do a bunch of good stuff. And maybe if there is a God, maybe you'll go to heaven. Uh, according to the, is, uh, the uh, Islam faith, it's very interesting. It's all a good work system. It's climbed the ladder as well. Try to do as much good as you can. But even Muhammad uh, did not know if he, if Allah would admit him into paradise after all the good that he did. Or take Hinduism. In Hinduism, there's all sorts of ideas on how you could achieve some kind of salvation experience. You could even try to swim in the Ganges River on certain occasions, and maybe you'd be granted forgiveness of sins. But it's all man-centered. Or take Buddhism, for example. Buddhism's the idea that you can get to nirvana, an enlightened state of consciousness, but you need a guide. Um, you need uh, help to get there from other people that have already been enlightened. Uh, Buddhism is probably one of the biggest influencers of the New Age movement. So when you go up to Sedona and you see all the psychics and all the uh, folks that are trying to guide you, the New Age idea is a very uh, man-centered idea as well. You're just climbing the ladder to different states of consciousness. Your goal is, in the New Age movement, is that you could achieve salvation or nirvana of some sort uh, through the realization of the oneness with the impersonal life force. You try to become one with everything. Um, there are methods to do this. You can do hypnosis, meditation. You could, there's certain kinds of music you could listen to. There's drugs you could take. I mean, this is what you get. I mean, it's just very, very interesting to me. Like, come on. Uh, spiritual tools that you can use in New Age to help you achieve your enlightenment is crystals, lots of crystals. Uh, vortexes, you ever been to one of those vortex and seen one of those vortex? Uh, different uh, uh, channeling, uh, fortune tellers, psychics, you name it. So what is John doing? John's saying that to be born again, to be a child of God, is nothing that you can do. It's of God. God does the saving. So the classic passage perhaps uh, uh, that you've heard before, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 um, if you know it, you can quote it with me, but it is, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. In other words, you're saved because of God's salvation, God's grace. God saves. God does the saving. Um, John is trying to get you to see that. It's of God. It's of God. It's of God. In other words, your story of your salvation 
it's of God. That makes you incredibly special because God had a rescue operation and said, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. And save you for a purpose, not just to experience God's blessing, but to be a blessing to other people. And by the way, this has been the role, the responsibility of all believers of all times. From the very beginning in the Old Testament with the Israelites, they were to be a, a, a nation among other nations. They were to be a light unto all nations. So their, their, uh, their believing came with a big responsibility. So God saves. God does the saving. Uh, even if Ephesians chapter 1, you could read there later, but it says in a sense that God loved us and he chose us in Christ. The Bible says in verse 5 that God decided in advance to adopt us into his family. So this can be challenging. This is where I'm saying let's pump the brakes and slow down. Uh, you may say, no, 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 no. I, I thought I chose salvation. It was my choosing. Well, yes, it was your choosing. You did accept Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, so did I. But the Bible also affirms the idea that God chose you. Jesus said this, actually, his very words. You did not choose me. I chose you. So what's at play here is two major theological categories that I want to explain to you. Is one is divine sovereignty and salvation. This is the idea that God planned before the foundations of the world that a great multitude of guilty sinners would be saved. That is divine sovereignty. Then there is the other idea at play here is the human responsibility. This is the idea that man is responsible for his salvation. The logic is, if I can accept him, I can reject him. And looking at the scriptures, if you look at them closely, uh, both are at play. Both. All throughout the scriptures, you see that and God uh, does the choosing, he selects, he elects, he chooses, he saves, God saves, God saves. And then you see on the other side, the human responsibility side, you see people that uh, the apostle Peter says, repent and believe, be baptized. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and I'll give you rest. Uh, the apostle Paul wrote in the church in Rome, if you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So what's at play here? The sovereignty of God in your salvation. Why are you a Christian? God chose you. Divine sovereignty. The other one is human responsibility. Uh, I chose Jesus Christ. I confess my sins. I believe this is good. Yes, both are at play. It's like if I uh, hold up my phone and you see I've got a phone. On one side, you see my screen. I've got a picture of my lovely daughter right here I love very much, uh, Riley. And then on the other side, there's nothing. It's just uh, the back of a phone. It's a phone, no matter which way you look at it. At one point, you see the back of the phone. The next point, you see the front of the phone. It's the same way with salvation. On your end, you might say, well, I see, from my perspective, I, did, I saved myself. I came to church. I heard the message. I responded. I filled out the connect card. I got baptized. I did it. Well, that's fine on your perspective. However, there's another thing at play here. God did the saving. From God's perspective, God saves. God chooses. Even Jesus said, again, I'll say, he says to his followers, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That's kind of overwhelmingly cool, though. We're chosen by God. 
That's like, I don't know, in junior high football, the one thing I hated at recess, we'd line up and then they'd elect team captains and I'd always be sitting there. I'm like, do you choose me? Do you choose me? And I didn't get chosen a lot. I wasn't really that great at football. I didn't get chosen. But in God's economy, God chooses. And you're on his team. And that's a special privilege. So here's another illustration. Imagine you get to heaven and you see this incredible big gate, pearly gate. And right at the top in the center uh, of this big gate, there's a huge sign and with big, big letters. And it says this, come all you who are weary, enter into your heavenly rest. I mean, that sounds like that could be there, right? Jesus said that. So imagine you get to heaven, big gate, big sign, come all you who are weary and I'll give you rest. You say, yeah, that's right. That's awesome. I'm coming to Jesus. I'm coming home. So you do. And then as as soon as you walk through that gate, it shuts. And you're like, whoa, that's cool. Look back and it says this, behold, I've chosen you in Christ to be here before the foundations of the world were ever created. So what's at play here? Both, both ideas. Did you choose God? Yes, you did. Did God choose you? Yes, he did. You say to me, well, that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things that don't make sense in the Christian life. Jesus said, if you want to, have, if you want to find your life, you better lose it. Bible says that if you want to uh, live, you better learn to die. This is the paradox. Or how about the, 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 the doctrine of the Trinity? We serve one God. We love one God. Uh, but there's one God, three persons, and all full of being God. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what the Bible teaches So the triune God, the Trinity, is like trying to wrap your arms around a giant redwood. It's not happening. You can't get your mind around it. You can't get your hands around it. So is the idea of salvation. God has a massive rescue operation in play on all the world. Salvation to the ends of the earth. And he is the Savior who should get the glory, according to John, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the rest of the New Testament writers. And did you have a part in it? Sure, you had a part in it. But God should get the ultimate glory. Your story, all for God's glory. So I'll close with this illustration. Imagine there's a firefighter who comes to save a man in a burning building. Uh, He's trapped in a room. He's screaming. He knows he's going to die. And the firefighter that came to rescue him starts to pound his axe against the steel door and it's locked shut. He yells to the man on the other side. He said, unlock this door and I can save you. Unlock this door and open it up and I'll rescue you. What you need to know, the message is always the same for believers, Christians, and church leaders to say, Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If you open that door and let me in, I will change your life. I will rescue you. I will save you. I will redeem you. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. And you will have eternal life. And so the question is, is do you accept or do you reject God's operation, God's search and rescue plan for our world? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are at work in the greatest search and rescue operation around our world. And we have so much to be thankful for. Father, I pray for those that are wanting to be in line with your plan and your purpose. 
for rescue from whatever situation they find themselves in, whatever situation that they feel they have walked into areas of darkness or discouraged in sin, I pray that they would pray a simple prayer like this. Lord, today, I need your rescue. I acknowledge you to be my Savior. I ask you to rescue me from my sin, my sorrow, my selfishness. And I thank you for your rescue operation in my life. I'm ready to live for you all the days of my life. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The Bible says if you believe that in your heart, then you will be saved. And that's a good prayer for all of us, even for us as believers, to remember that we need rescue from our situations. And God is great. And He's good. And so I want to encourage you to, if that's you and you took that step, go ahead and get baptized today after third service. You're like, yeah, all right now, we'll go do it right after the third service. We're going to baptize some folks. And that's why we give at the church. That's why we serve is because we want the great search and rescue operation to keep moving forward. And we have a responsibility in the North Phoenix Valley to make sure that everybody gets the opportunity And here's the great news about Jesus Christ. Because his name is life. His name is the name above all names. Amen? All right. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give today at northvalleychurch.org.